This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. Today, we're celebrating Bound Off's fourth anniversary of monthly podcasts. Our audio broadcasts of short stories have been downloaded almost a quarter of a million times since we first launched in February 2006. This month, we are rebroadcasting two pieces by the poet Robert Dana, who passed away on February 6, 2010. We were extremely fortunate to meet Robert Dana a few years ago, and now we mourn the loss of a great poet and person. He originally recorded these readings for our May 2008 podcast. The Visit Written and read by Robert Dana Listening time, 11 minutes, 40 seconds The Visit There remained one last visit to make Shirley hadn't attended the class reunion the night before, although she was in town. So we drove out Kingsley, the light rain now subsiding to the little bedraggled house she'd bought. The Cameron's van, with its Mississippi military plates, stood parked in the muddy little sloping drive. Pete went to the door and rang the bell. No sense in your getting wet if she's not here, he said. A somewhat disheveled Shirley opened the door. I got out and walked down the drive, avoiding the muddy sections as best I could. I was struck immediately by how old she looked. We embraced at the doorway, and Pete and I entered a small, shadowy room dominated by a wall-sized flat-panel video screen and a couch. A large, molecular structure bubbled silently on the black screen. God, Tony, she said a little hysterically, I thought. You've become a literary giant. Well, hardly, I said. I've written a few books and published in some pretty good places. Jack, she called to the young man sitting on the couch behind her. Come here. You've got to meet this guy. He's an old high school classmate of mine. He's a literary giant. Jack's a writer, too, she said. He has his degree in philosophy from the University of Oklahoma. Jack, a lean young man with a shaved head and wearing a black T-shirt and blue jeans, responded dutifully. But the twist of his smile told me that he was not impressed. Jack's written some good things, Shirley said. His professor said his writing was publishable, But he's not doing anything with his talent. He's just wasting his time here in this house. Why aren't you writing something, Jack? She went on in this vein. Pete and I looked at each other. Being called to witness Jack's failings was not what we'd had in mind when we rang the doorbell. Offered something to drink, we both said, a glass of ice water would be fine. Jack, Shirley said, 
bring some ice water. Jack took his opportunity to exit his mother's presence and went below, presumably to the kitchen, returning a few minutes later empty-handed. By this time, Shirley was on another tack. My father was the town drunk, and everybody loved him, she said. Everybody. It's true. When he died, the church was packed for his funeral. People had to stand outside. Yeah, young Jack cut in. It takes a whole village to raise a drunk. Oh, touche, I said. Very witty. I'm going to steal that line from you. It's yours, Jack said. A freebie. We tried to call you a couple of times to see if you were in town, I said to Shirley. But the message said your number was no longer in service. It's just my cell phone now, Jack said. You see, that's no good, Shirley complained. Now my friends can't reach me because they don't know your number. I don't remember Jack's response, if there was one. Shirley, it turned out, had finished some kind of degree at Mississippi State and done further work at a university in Alabama without finishing the requirements. I don't feel like I've accomplished anything in my life, she continued. Well, I've been married 52 years to Jack's father. I guess that counts for something. You should meet him before you go. Jack, where's your father? He's downstairs watching a ball game. Well, go get him. Tell him I want him to meet some friends of mine. Jack, she says, this time referring to the absent husband, is a real redneck. I mean, deep south. He doesn't like it here at all. You should meet him. Pete's eyes met mine. What next? A retro southerner? Borderline KKK? A monster? When Jack Sr. comes up from below, he's a tall, slope-shouldered, quiet-spoken man with gray hair clipped short who shakes our hands warmly. He's a 40-year veteran of both military and civilian air traffic control operations, now retired at the rank of colonel. He and Shirley had moved around quite a bit over the years. New Orleans, D.C., Huntsville, Alabama, and most recently Meridian, Mississippi, where their house had taken a major hit from Hurricane Katrina. When we were allowed back, Jack Sr. said softly, it looked from the outside like things were okay. A few shingles off the roof, some siding gone, broken windows, minor stuff. But when we opened the door, it looked like somebody would set off a nuclear bomb inside. You could tell from the walls we'd had six foot of tidal surge. Everything was ruined. We lost everything, Shirley said. Photos, clothes, the paintings in my studios. We lost our identity. 
We were able to put the house back in shape, Pete said to Jack Sr. Oh, yeah, he replied. It's taken months, living in motels. We were lucky, though. There's a lot of our neighbors lost their houses. There's still nothing on their property but a bare slab. There's a lot of angry people down there. Angry at the government. Angry at the insurance companies. Young Jack had taken himself off somewhere during his father's recitation. Now he was back. Well, we should be going, Peter said. We need to get going, too, young Jack said. Why, we're not going anywhere, Shirley put in. Young Jack gave her a look. Yes, we are. Susan's coming over, and we're going... His last words faded as he disappeared down the stairs. Pete and I shook Jack Sr.'s hand again and wished him and Shirley good luck in their restored house. I hope you have a quiet storm season, I said. As we walked outside with Shirley, Pete said to her, Well, Tony thought you'd be at the high school reunion last night, so we looked for you, but we didn't see you. Shirley came back in that high-pitched, fast-talking, slightly hysterical voice. Oh, I didn't want to go anymore. All they do there is talk about who died since the last time. I'm sick of talking about dead people. Then she paused, and in a lowered voice said, I used to go every year, and I always asked about you, Tony, where you were and what you were doing. They said you were out west somewhere, that you were a college professor, that you were a publishing writer. I embraced this sweet monkey-faced girl with sad, large brown eyes, a woman now grown old, disappointed in her life and her son, and perhaps grown tired and fearful. I'm glad we stopped, I lied. It's been good to see you. Peter said his goodbyes, too, and we walked up the muddy slope, got into his Chrysler, and drove away. On the way home and late into the evening, we expressed our amazement at Shirley's behavior. Pete had seen her every year since she'd returned recently and said he'd never seen her like that. Maybe they'd been drinking, he said. I didn't see any sign of it. Beer cans or glasses for drinks. And she didn't smell of booze, I said. Well, maybe it was the shock of seeing you unexpectedly, you know, the literary giant. Peter's eyes twinkled. Okay, okay, the successful writer there at her door that threw her off. Maybe she didn't know what to say to you. Maybe, I said. We never did get those glasses of water, did we? As I was leaving the next morning to drive to Connecticut to visit some other old friends for a few days, Peter stood by looking thoughtful. The morning rain had stopped temporarily. You know, he said, 
maybe being displaced by Katrina and having their house ruined and a lot of people dying down there had something to do with her not coming to the reunion. Maybe that's what's behind her remark about all people do at reunions is talk about who died. Peter is a very perceptive man at times. That's a thought, I said. Maybe so. We gave each other bear hugs. Be careful driving, Pete said. You too, I said. And be good to yourself. I'll see you soon. I backed the rented Kia down the steep drive and honked the horn twice. I turned right on Highway 9 at the bottom of High Street and drove west. The rain had started up again. It would be a long day. Elegy for a Hometown Written and read by Robert Dana Listening time, 3 minutes, 35 seconds. Uh, The final piece I'm going to read is uh, a poem entitled Elegy for a Hometown, uh, which is developed out of the same material that uh, spurred the uh, writing of the previous vignette entitled The Visit. Uh, This poem uh, will also probably, by the time you hear it read, uh, be uh, published in the Iowa Review, uh, Elegy for a Hometown. I'm done now with the dark houses of the East, my hometown. The book is closing on my generation. Skinner satin mills, long gone to producing brass and machine gun clips and milk bottle caps, are now themselves long gone. And the orchard of 10,000 apple trees that fed our insatiable boyish hungers, a wilderness of stumps and weeds. Even the rivers changed course, leaving Walpole's cove bleached and dry, where in winter the local farmers sawed thick blocks of ice, skidding them up a frozen ramp to waiting wagons. Horses named Belle and Sophie, stamping and steaming and shaking their harnesses, until they rang. My Polak neighbor's dairy farm's now a golf course. Tees and greens and easy fairways. We once killed black snakes there through the long summers and forking up corners saved the sweet-smelling wind-road hay from oncoming rain. Chaff stinging our sweat-drenched bodies like shirts of nettle. So what's to say when a whole chunk of your life comes up missing? You say to yourself, well, there it is. 
or well there it was wasn't it God's his own voyeur after more than half a century I walked the town with the only man who knows my name soon I'll bury my own shadow and slip away like sunlight Simplicity's what I'm best at. In the end, a small box of a house by the sea. No electricity, no running water, dirt floored. Prayer, wind and slapdash from the whereafter. Robert Dana's most recent books of poetry are The Morning of the Red Admirals and Summer, both published by Aninga Press. He also edited the prose books A Community of Writers, Paul Engel and the Iowa Writers Workshop, and Against the Grain, Interviews with Maverick American Publishers. Dana graduated in 1954 from the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, where he studied with Robert Lowell and John Berryman. He has served as Distinguished Visiting Writer at universities in the U.S. and abroad. And after 40 years of teaching at Cornell College, he retired in 1994 as Professor of English and Poet-in-Residence. His work was awarded National Endowment Fellowships in 1985 and 1993, the Delmar Schwartz Memorial Poetry Award in 1989, and a Pushcart Prize in 1996. He was the Poet Laureate of Iowa from 2004 to 2008. Dana's last two books will be issued in April 2010. New and Selected Poems, 1955 to 2010, and a book of essays titled Paris on the Flats, Versions of a Literary Life. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.